Welcome, everyone. Today is July 12th, 2023. And boy, it is a pretty interesting day today. It's hump day. So it's about time we get over this hump. There are a lot that we can talk about, a lot of things that we're being told to talk about, but we're not going to do that. We're going to revisit something that I stated a while back. It's a topic of discussion that has been circulating in global discourse for about 40 years. The theory of how it can be orchestrated to gain global control through manufactured water shortages. That's the grand scheme of things. You can survive without food for a while, but not without water. This is a very controversial topic, and it's important to explore all perspectives that you may come across. Disclosure on things such as water shortages is extremely tasking and concerning for many people around the world, as we all understand the necessity. Just so you understand those that tend to claim power, that you will own nothing and be happy. Advocate for the unification of humankind under one single world government. Using our water, which is our most vital resource, as a tool of control and population management. While biowarfare assists in culling the population at a rate that they desire, if this was the case, of course, allegedly. Water being the lifeblood of this biodome is indeed being manipulated. And this has been a topic and a plan for a very long time. To create artificial shortages, thereby exerting influence over nations and their people. At the crux of this, these shortages are not a result of natural phenomena or mismanagement, but rather a deliberate act to control populations and consolidate this power. The scarcity of water in this context is seen as a means to an end, a way to exert their control, influence policy, and shape societal structures. Now Uruguay. I did a show on Paraguay and Uruguay and the most interesting uh, portion of that for all of you aside from the historical context and to observe how they have been the UN's testing ground was to bring attention to you that in their neighboring country of Paraguay and the really odd history that Uruguay has in its manifestation as a nation was the writing on the wall. When you see... Legacy families, such as the Bushes, the Rothschilds, and the UN in general, target and sequester natural water resources at a neighboring nation, manufacture droughts. I mean, Uruguay this year, last year was flooded, and now they're at one of their highest droughts. It starts to make sense because in the past, Uruguay has pioneered initiatives such as legalizing abortion, uh, free uh, secondary education, uh, drugs are free, everything's free, universal basic income, you name it. Anything that is part of the 2030 agenda has already been implemented in Uruguay 
And and now with the 2063 agenda that is coming, and this is the implementation because the 2030 is already complete. You may not like what I'm telling you, but that's the way it is. So considering that that is the case, one must understand how this happens. Uh, again, Uruguay has a history of progressive policy implementation. And this is where the stage for testing new tactics of societal manipulation and structures begin. And the new tactic of water control is unfolding before your eyes. Now, I will bring your attention again to the derailment of the railway in Ohio, which I amplified, which I focused on, which I again made clear was extremely unexpected. But it served multiple purposes because the place where the derailment happened will be where they will place water treatment plants. And you might say, why? Remember, Ohio was selected to manufacture chips, and that requires a lot of clean water. But don't worry, the government will help you. It will recycle it for you. One thing is clear. Water is a precious resource and its management is a global concern that requires our collective attention because it is necessary for life, prosperity, and water management should never be used as a weapon of control as it is necessary. Now, this is a matter of grave concern, a matter that strikes at the very heart of every nation, especially ours, and the principles upon which our great nation was founded on. It's extremely important that we understand how this happens. Now, let's just see what the news are telling us about this. About a month ago, NBC, and I did tell you that a water shortage is coming, so don't say I didn't warn you. While many people be like, no, my state, you don't understand. It's not about telling you there isn't water. It's about telling you there isn't any drinking water. So before we delve into how they are doing this to the Uruguayans, let's hear a report from NBC about this. There's just not enough water to go around. If you live somewhere where it rains, you need flood insurance. It is the largest natural catastrophe that we have. It's happening all the time. Wow, you can't make a mistake when you're irrigating or else you could quickly run out of your water. It's hard really to find a business that's not being affected. These aren't just issues in developing countries, something you hear about elsewhere. These are things that are happening in our communities all the time. 71% of our planet's surface is covered in water. 332.5 million cubic miles of it. 366 billion billion gallons. That's over 48 billion gallons of water for every person on Earth. But today, one out of three people don't have access to safe drinking water. Some projections will show by 2050, more than half our population will be living in water-stressed areas. That's over 4 billion people. These aren't just issues in developing countries, something you hear about elsewhere. These are things that are happening in our communities all the time. Worried and angry about lead contamination. The military in remote parts of Puerto Rico. And that's the result of many things, but one one of them is that 96.5% of that water is found in our oceans. It's saturated with salt and undrinkable. And most of the Earth's fresh water is locked away in glaciers or deep underground. Less than 1% of it is available to us. 
When you dig a little bit and look under the surface, even here in the United States, we have large numbers of people that don't have access to safe, clean drinking water. So why can't we just take all that seawater, filter out the salt, and have a nearly unlimited supply of clean, drinkable water? Desalination, broadly, is the process of removing salts from water. It's been practiced for years. In fact, it's a natural process. It occurs when the sun uh, heats the ocean and fresh water evaporates off and it falls again as, as rainfall. If you mix salt into water, it dissolves. And if you could watch microscopically while you did that, you'd see that the water is actually breaking apart the salt into charged particles that chemically interact with the water. So salt water is a chemically new solution. It's not just water with some salt grains floating around in it. And that's why desalination is a fundamentally tricky process. The two main types of desalination are thermal desalination and reverse osmosis. Thermal desalination is the oldest form of desalination. It's essentially boiling water and then capturing the steam and turning that into fresh water. But in the 60s, we, we were able to develop reverse osmosis processes at UCLA, and these have now started to dominate the market. So one of the big chief differences between the two is reverse osmosis doesn't use heat, doesn't boil anything. You're really just pressurizing the water to a tremendous amount, and you're forcing it through a membrane where it doesn't want to go. It wants to stay with the salt, but with this high pressure, it is forced to uh, separate from the salt. Broadly speaking, what you want to look at for desalination is, where's my fresh water coming from and do I have enough of it? And if I don't have enough of it, do I need to augment supply? Desalination then starts to become a very attractive or interesting option. Which is why the vast majority of desalination efforts right now are happening in places like the Middle East and North Africa, rich with fossil fuels, but also experiencing extreme water scarcity. Just two countries, Saudi Arabia and UAE, they produce one-fourth of uh, the desalination water that is produced currently on this planet. Concerns about desalination fall broadly into three categories. The amount of energy required, how much it costs, and its environmental impacts. There are some that really see it as a key solution. Um, there are others that push back and argue that it's very energy intensive, it's very expensive, it has impacts on the marine environment, and that we should pursue alternatives first. It requires a tremendous amount of energy to basically break up that bond between the water and the salt. The ocean water desal can be 25 times as energy intensive as other freshwater approaches. Historically, the impediment for seawater desalination being more uh, abundant or popular in North America has been cost. It has been cost prohibitive historically. The Claude Lewis Carlsbad desalination plant outside of San Diego is the largest of its kind in the Western Hemisphere and has been operating since 2015, producing 50 million gallons of clean water a day. It's in San Diego County because of its dry, arid climate. The county has historically imported nearly all of its water from the Colorado River in Northern California. In San Diego, in the Carlsbad example, they're spending twice as much for seawater desalination as they do on imported water. Now they were looking at it and saying, well, at some point in the future, the cost will be comparable. Um, and I think some folks pointed to the fact that, well, when that's the case, then that's probably when you should 
build it. Today, desalinated water in Carlsbad costs approximately twice as much as imported water, but you're comparing apples and oranges because that imported water is coming from systems that were built a half a century ago where all the capital investment has been paid off. Standing down for five or 10 years, hoping there's some major breakthrough in the technology not going to materially reduce the cost of building infrastructure. That's not unique to desalinated water. That's true of all public infrastructure. We, we have a huge deficit. We need to start building not just water, but transportation and housing now, not five or 10 years from now. The Carlsbad plant is operated as a public-private partnership. With the Carlsbad seawater desalination plant and the proposed Huntington Beach seawater desalination plant, we're proposing a public-private partnership where the plant is 100% privately financed. And then we enter into a long-term fixed-price water purchase agreement with a public water agency. And essentially, we're recovering our investment over time through the sale of water. There's an infrastructure deficit in the United States. There's certainly an infrastructure deficit in California, and you can't expect local, state, and federal government to pay for all of it. The private sector is going to have to invest private dollars, and I think there's a huge opportunity in water in a way that both uh, protects the ratepayers and also allows for the investment of private capital. Beyond the environmental costs of producing the energy needed to power these plants, another concern arises because they're not just outputting clean, desalinated water. They're also producing huge amounts of hyper-salty water, called brine, as a byproduct. Seawater desalination plants that use reverse osmosis typically operate at a 50% efficiency in that if you take in two gallons of seawater, you're going to produce one gallon of fresh water and one gallon of hypersaline brine. It's a fixed volume of salt that I'm trying to remove. So whether I put it in half a gallon of water or a tenth of a gallon of water, it's still going to be there and it's just going to be much more concentrated. As desalination efforts grow, it's not clear what should be done with these huge amounts of brine. Globally right now, we're producing over 37 billion gallons a day. Most brine is in one way or another emptied back into the ocean, but because it has a much higher salt concentration than regular seawater, it has the potential to, among other things, sink to the seafloor and wreak havoc on the plants and animals found there. In addition, because these facilities are taking in millions of gallons of seawater a day, the intake itself could destroy local marine life. But Poseidon Water, which operates the Carlsbad plant, says the regulations in California provide sufficient environmental protection. Numerous studies have been done in California and around the world that show that level of salinity increase will not harm marine life. And you're also providing drinking water to people in need. But a recent study published in 2018 showed that we're producing even more brine than we thought. For every liter of uh, desalinated water, we produce 1.5 liters of brine. In other words, overall, we are producing more brine than we produce uh, desalinated water. And while some places like California have robust regulations regarding brine in place, it's not clear that as a whole, the industry is taking its disposal seriously enough. Currently, we are disposing of brine in a way which we use to dispose of industrial wastewater about 40, 50 years ago. So if desalination uses a huge amount of energy, is very expensive compared to other options, and in the end we're producing more potentially harmful brine than clean water, why do we continue to pursue it? Desalination has its drawbacks, but one of the benefits is that it's a fairly stable and known process, particularly for dealing with ocean water. You can be confident that it will supply you water when you need it. Reliability is the key. 
Water scarcity is a complex, difficult problem. Climate change is affecting everything and introducing growing uncertainty. Weather is variable, but if you have a desalination plant, energy, and seawater, you can reliably get clean water. But desalination undeniably uses a large amount of energy, and for some, it's just fundamentally difficult to advocate for a technology that would be adding to our ever-growing energy needs. I think when we start to look into these water-scarce worlds, we start to think about, well, energy provides us services. It heats our homes, it lights our offices and buildings. And if we think of energy as a service that could give us water, for some context, you know, the average person in the U.S. uses about 100 gallons of water. No water, no water. Now, if you remember years ago, I was like, well, you know, I got these new filters. Berkey's, etc. Uh, talked about the difference between spring water and purified water. And I think we should revisit that because we need to start paying attention to what they're doing. And uh, if, you know, when I go back home to New York, I get a lot of people that say, well, New York water is one of the best waters you'll ever have. And in fact, they even have commercials. The mayor of New York um, actually ran a commercial of, hey, you should be drinking tap water. Mimology actually put it together, which was great, and I want to show it to you. But the same thing is happening in my city of Cleveland, and I'm sure in many others, how our water treatment is fantastic. And again, for those states that claim we have water, we have this, we have that, don't you understand? You may have water reserves, but they are manufacturing a water crisis. And this is what I have been trying to iterate. I mean, think of it. If I was the tyrant, I would have a multifaceted strategy to control the world's water supply and by extension, the global population. And under the guise of climate change using, uh, you know, desalination plants, doesn't make sense. That costs too much energy. And then Remember how I got into the technology that Hunter Biden was trying to push during Haiti, you know, where you just make water out of the air. And then how I annotated how if you collect rainwater at your home and even your wells, they will be confiscated by your government. Now, even though water may taste nice to you and may not smell off, you'll be very surprised what's in it. Here's what the mayor of New York said. Hey, tap into good health. I never head out without my New York City tap water. Hey, tap into good health. I never head out without my New York City tap water. Hot outside. urge every New Yorker to drink up. Tap water is the best. I urge every New Yorker to drink up. Tap water is the best. Some facts right there. Now you're going to say that's 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 not right, Tori. Well, how's this? 
If I was a tyrant, I would leverage the water-intensive industry of data centers and chip manufacturing in order to help usher a quicker, 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 quicker water crisis. Remember how I said there's an Intel chip plant happening in Ohio, the railroad derailment, where it happened was not happenstance. Because why? These industries require vast amounts of water for cooling and production of their processes, right, for data centers and to create silicone chips. And by controlling these industries, you can artificially inflate the demand for water, creating a perceived shortage. I would strategically locate these industries in areas already facing water scarcity or to exasperate the problem, right? Or I would go to water-rich areas like the Ohio River, Mississippi River, and get in there to exploit their water resources. Now, again, by strategically selecting the areas that I would cause uh, a manufactured water scarcity, it would allow me to control the distribution of water, deciding who gets it and who doesn't, and thereby I wield power over regions and their populations. In addition, if I were to do this, I would introduce a system where the only available water for the general population is recycled water. This would be marketed as a sustainable solution to the water shortage crisis, diverting attention from the fact that it's a means of control. And in order to do that in this water system, I would add certain chemicals and agents to the recycled water. These additives could be presented as necessary for the purification process, but in reality, they would serve a dual purpose. They could potentially be used to influence the health of the population, either by inducing certain conditions or by making them dependent on specific treatments or medications, which I would also control. And to ensure the success of this plan, I would need to control information flow. And this is achieved, obviously, as we know, by owning media outlets and promoting narratives that support my actions. You'd also need to suppress dissenting voices, Tori. And that's exactly what I would do and any evidence that contradicts my narrative. So I would be able to effectively control the world's water supply and through it, the health and lives of the global population. Oh, is that far-fetched? Oh, you haven't understood exactly what they've been up to. So let's take a look of this report from seven months ago. Quite fascinating. Remember, trial runs, you pick the right country to do the trial run. And they did. Uruguay is ideal. They never complain. They implement all their policies first. Here we go. You can't see them or taste them, but there are more than 12,000 chemicals that could be lurking in your drinking water, causing everything from birth defects to cancer. I think people need to understand that all these chemicals will persist in our environment essentially forever. These chemicals are broadly known as PFAS, dangerous man-made toxins that never go away found in everything from baby clothes and dog food packaging to nonstick cookware and dental floss. 
Currently, much attention is focused on drinking water, as communities around the country are learning these hazardous chemicals can seep into their water supplies, from industry discharge, landfills, airports, and military bases. So we decided to test what's coming out of taps, from suburban homes and city businesses to the halls of government. Bottle after bottle, we collected samples at 11 locations in Maryland, Virginia, and in Washington, D.C., including at the U.S. Capitol and the EPA, the very places critical decisions will be made about these chemicals. In nearly every case, including at the U.S. Capitol and the EPA, tests were positive for a type of PFAS known as PFHXA. That is unregulated in the U.S., but on the verge of being severely restricted in the European Union because of its harmful effects on the reproductive system. More than a third of our samples contained PFOA, universally viewed as one of the most serious PFAS chemicals. And in two of our tests in suburban Virginia homes, the levels of PFOA were more than 1,200 times higher than what the EPA is proposing as safe. We took what we found to Dr. Linda Birnbaum, the former director of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences and one of the country's leading experts on PFAS. What's disturbing to you about the test results? That they're everywhere, that you're seeing these chemicals essentially everywhere. So the levels are low, which is the good news, but they're still there. One of the chemicals we detected that she was perhaps most concerned about is called PFHXS. We found it in the tap water of two Maryland homes. And that one really concerns me because there are growing amounts of animal and human data showing that PFHXS may be every bit as bad as, say, PFOS and PFOA, and it lasts in our bodies for a longer period of time. All PFAS accumulate in our bodies. The EPA says PFAS chemicals can affect the development of babies, impact the liver, kidneys, and immune system, and have been associated with certain cancers. This summer, the EPA proposed reducing the acceptable level of one of the most prevalent PFAS chemicals by more than 99.99%. The water that I was drinking that I thought was clean, was toxic and full of these chemicals. For years, marathoner Beth Marcasino drank huge amounts of her tap water. I ran with a camelback, which is like a backpack and has a large quantity of water. Did it ever occur to you that that water might be contaminated? Never, not in a million years, ever. Until her son Samuel died shortly after birth, failing to develop a kidney or bladder, problems that some studies have linked to PFAS exposure, and Beth believes may be linked to the death of her son. But here I am today, I should have never have ever questioned that, that my water was the source that killed my son. She believes his death can be traced to massive quantities of PFAS chemicals that were dumped for three decades into the river that supplies drinking water to more than 300,000 Wilmington, North Carolina residents. But Wilmington isn't alone. By some estimates, 200 million Americans nationwide are likely drinking water polluted with these chemicals. We predicted that in the U.S. there's over 53,000 sites that have contamination. In fact, I think that we think that's a very conservative number and it's probably many more. 
In a first-of-its-kind study, Dr. Birnbaum and colleagues mapped probable communities with high concentrations of PFAS chemicals. No state was spared, and some regions were blanketed. How many people would you estimate in America have measurable exposure to PFAS? I think almost everybody. Whether you have PFAS in your tap water depends on where you live. Most states have not adopted limits, leaving the most likely regulation to come from the EPA, which told us it hopes to have a national regulation with enforceable PFAS limits in place by the end of next year. Wilmington, North Carolina is now successfully reducing PFAS in the water, but it took five years and taxpayers footing the bill for a hard-fought $43 million water treatment plant upgrade. I hope that nobody else in America has to endure the same loss that I do. But I believe that with enough fight and enough effort, we can stop these chemicals from being produced. That's what I'm gonna do because my daughter and other families deserve this. Our team wanted to take this one step further. So we tested nearly two dozen top brands of bottled water from across the country. The good news? Every sample we took came back with no detectable levels of PFAS. For Spotlight on America, I'm Lisa Fletcher. And that, my friends, is how you create product placement for water bottles. Now, many of you will be like, well, you know, this is good. This is not good. This is something that they've been talking about. This is how they're going to get it done. This is how they control you, create a crisis and provide a solution. And the thing is, the water crisis, the water issues are not something you should take lightly because it's quite alarming as to how far people would go. Now, I have talked about bottled water. So I think it's important to see where your bottled water comes from and um, which one is actually spring water and which one is actually recycled tap water that's been purified. So when you go to the store and you buy bottled water, you should be looking at if it says purified, that means it's tap water or recycled water from a power plant or data center, right? Or from a manufacturing silicone chip plant recycled water. That's what purified water means. So take a look at this short clip. Well, I hope that helped in this animated thing because I have talked about how they've been buying up the water in the past. I've also talked about the importance of water and the memory of water and how important it is for us. Now, why am I saying this? Well, let's pop into Uruguay. A month ago, it was reported that there's a historic drought in Uruguay that has dried out their reservoirs that provide water for the country's capital, Montevideo, and that they've had low rainfall and high temperatures across the southern region that has hit their crops too. So, you know, by manufacturing weather, which I've talked about before, 
using, uh, you know, Popeye from Operation Popeye, Project Popeye, whatever you want to call it. That's an actual fact. There's paperwork on that. Uh, you can manipulate uh, the weather and therefore manipulate crop growth, farm farming industries, you name it, you can control it in addition to the ability for people to have access to clean water. Here's what Al Jazeera reported. The group has been getting together for more than a year to cook for those in need. But providing food is not the main concern these days, it's drinking water. Alexis Alonso says the water coming from the tap is undrinkable because it has too much sodium. We used to cook with tap water and now we can't because it's too salty. So we changed how we cook and use bottled water. It's a concern because too much salt is not healthy and everyone is worried. The water is salty because low reserves of fresh water force the public water company to mix supplies with water from the river plate. The result is low levels of sodium and chlorides. Even though Uruguay sits on large water reserves, the deficit is the worst in over 70 years. The river that provides most of the drinking water in the capital of 1.6 million people has been severely affected by the drought. This is the Paso Severino Dam. It is just one of the water sources that feeds Uruguay's capital, Montevideo. It has a capacity for 67 million cubic meters of water, but right now it has only 4 million. It is just one example of how serious the situation is right now. The government has been distributing drinking water to hospitals, schools and other buildings in the capital that are in desperate need. Experts say the region needs to be better prepared to adapt to the impact of climate change. Climate change is a reality and we know that we will have to adapt to extreme weather changes. And we will see this again and that's why we need to be prepared, do more research, take care of our water sources that are abundant. In Montevideo, people are trying to adapt to the lack of water, but not everyone is happy. Water is a human right and we are on the reserves of the Guarani Aquifer and we have no water. Politicians need to give us an explanation and give us solutions. It's not only the drought that is affecting us. People here know the capital's reservoir has only a few days left of water. That's why everyone is hoping it will rain soon considering that they were underwater and had massive floods last year. It's pretty interesting, right? But I want to revisit something that I showed you, right? I had mentioned to you how Uruguay is the poster child for the UN and how people tell us that we can learn because this tiny country, as they said, can put the United States to shame as their progressive policy of gender-affirming surgeries and abortion are fantastic. Look at how you capture a nation simply by giving them what they ask for, owning nothing and being happy. There's a tiny country in South America that puts most of the world to shame when it comes to civil liberty. There's a tiny country in South America that puts most of the world to shame when it comes to civil liberties. It's Uruguay, the least corrupt, most secular and democratic country in Latin America. And although it's often overlooked, Uruguay has been quietly thriving for decades. In fact, Uruguay is a world leader in civil liberties. But how did it manage to get there? Hey guys, it's Dina, and this is part two of our series, What the U.S. Can Learn from Other Countries. 
Today, we're looking at Uruguay's progressive policies and the powerful lessons it could teach the U.S. about democratic leadership and political participation. With a population of just three and a half million, Uruguay is a small country but a civil rights giant. Nearly 99% of its population could read and write as of 2018, courtesy of Uruguay's free public education, which ranges from elementary school all the way to university. Around 87% of the population over 65 is covered by the national pension system. And more than 90% of Uruguayans have access to running water, electricity, and sanitation. Marriage equality, abortion, and the controlled growing and selling of cannabis were all legalized between 2012 and 2013. Most recently in 2018, Uruguay passed a law that defines gender-affirming surgery and hormone therapy as a right, making sure that these treatments get paid for by the state. And this year, Parliament is discussing a bill to legalize euthanasia and assisted suicide. A recent poll found that 62% of the population is in favor of assisted suicide and 82% support euthanasia. All these initiatives are extraordinary because we're talking about a region that's largely conservative. The Catholic Church has had a strong influence on politics ever since Spain colonized the region in the late 15th century. So how did this tiny country sandwiched between giants Brazil and Argentina manage to become this progressive? The country's most significant moves were taking religion out of politics and building a welfare state. This movement, this welfare state, had a strong leader that uh, had a, a very advanced uh, set of ideas at the time. The strong leader Professor Arosena is referring to is this man, José Baje y Ordóñez. Many of Uruguay's progressive traditions can be traced back to his secular government of the early 1900s, which abolished the death penalty, legalized divorce, introduced women's voting rights, and expanded workers' rights by implementing eight-hour workdays a pension system, and unemployment compensation. Not only did this period of time lay the foundation for today's welfare state, it also passed on its secular spirit all the way to modern-day Uruguayan society. Religion plays a very small role in public life in our country. Religiosity now in Uruguay is strongly associated with some personal belief, not much linked to an institutional church. Preaching religion in public schools was and still is prohibited, but students are allowed to miss school for religious holidays. Christmas Day is celebrated as Family Day. Three Kings Day, a widely celebrated day by Catholics in Latin America, is Children's Day. Easter, it's called Tourism Week. But that doesn't mean Uruguayans aren't religious. Almost 90% of the population believe in some God. Only 10% of atheists. It just means that in Uruguay, religious institutions don't influence politics as much as they do in other countries. And that's partly why it's been able to build a solid democracy over time. Uruguay is currently the 15th most democratic country in the world, and it's recognized as a full democracy by the Economist's Democracy Index. The US, on the other hand, ranks 25th and is considered a flawed democracy. And it may not come as a surprise that this has a lot to do with political participation. The average voter turnout in Uruguay is around 90%. 
Why? Because unlike in the U.S., voting there is compulsory. Es un mecanismo el voto obligatorio de de construcción de virtudes cívicas, ¿m? de construcción de ciudadanos involucrados, de ciudadanos activos, de ciudadanos críticos. And it doesn't only change the way voters behave, but political parties as well. El voto obligatorio obliga a los partidos a pensar en todos, a hablarle a todos, a escuchar a todos, porque el voto del más rico vale lo mismo que el voto del más pobre, ¿no? Entonces, el voto obligatorio también contribuye a incrementar el poder político de los pobres. Oh, isn't that nice? We're going to force voting too. To make sure that we have all of them so that way you can assume that everything is intact and everything is amazing. But if you remember, I stressed something that a lot of people overlooked, and that was the hack that happened a few years ago in Florida to their water system. See, they tell you everything they're going to do, and everybody tells you who they are. You're just not listening. Back on a water treatment plant is raising big questions about the vulnerability of critical facilities nationwide. Federal investigators are searching for a hacker who tried to poison the Oldsmar, Florida water system on Friday, just 15 miles from the Super Bowl, right before the big game. Officials say the intruder broke into the water treatment controls for about five minutes. As Jeff Begay's reports, the intent was to add too much of a dangerous chemical. This is obviously a significant and potentially dangerous increase. Pinellas County Sheriff Bob Galtieri says a water treatment plant operator first noticed the remote access hack. The bad actor increased the amount of sodium hydroxide or lye in the water supply from 100 parts per million to more than 11,000. The public was never in danger. It would have taken between 24 and 36 hours for that water to hit the water supply system. For the 15,000 residents of Oldsmar, Florida, the increase of sodium hydroxide in the water supply could have caused vomiting, chest, and abdominal pain. This type of activity and this type of hacking of critical infrastructure is not necessarily limited to just water supply systems. It can be anything. And that's of concern to people like Robert Lee, CEO of cybersecurity firm Dragos. He says this hack wasn't necessarily sophisticated, but many smaller cities like Oldsmar don't always have the resources to protect against them. When you think about some of our most critical infrastructures, they're pretty well protected. But when you think about a municipality or some of our smaller infrastructure, they don't get the same resources as the others. Lee says on the local level, communities need to invest in stronger cybersecurity and dedicated staffing to protect against hacks. When it comes to our smaller infrastructure sites, they are much more vulnerable in the sense that they aren't investing as much in security, but they're also not necessarily as big of a target. On a national scale, that may not seem impactful, but to those 15,000 people and their families, that's extraordinarily impactful. The Secret Service cyber units are working in this case. They are leading the investigation along with help from the FBI, trying to track down the suspect or suspects behind this hack and trying to determine whether they are here in the U.S. or somewhere overseas. It's the kind of investigation that could take months or longer. Anthony. Such a close call, Jeff. Thank you. Such a close call. The people in Uruguay right now are screaming because there's a Google data center that everyone knew was going to be coming up for over two years in Uruguay when I started talking about it. Because here is where it begins. See, Google always offers solutions 
every single one. There's creative water solutions for their Dutch data center, so they'll have a creative one for the one in Uruguay, which by the way, you may find articles about the Uruguayans complaining about Google, but you won't find any videos. Fascinating. The conversation around water has changed in the Netherlands. When I was growing up, there was always enough water or sometimes too much water. We never used to worry where our drinking water would come from. Water has always been a very, very important subject in the Netherlands. Thousands of years ago, no people were basically living there, but then the seawater level dropped and some areas became drier. And that's when people started moving and living in the Netherlands on little hills. Every couple of hundreds of years, we had huge floodings. And that's when the Dutch really started to manage water. They first started with big dikes, double dikes, and then with real waterworks, like big sluices, like water locks. They started digging canals for transportation. But nowadays, like the last 10 to 20 years, we have experienced drought for the first time. Last summer, there were already discussions ongoing that might not be enough to supply everybody with enough water. The farmers couldn't use the amount of water that they would have liked for their crops, for their lands. We have to think about preserving the water for drier periods of time. I'm Inge van Ditzijze. I'm the operations manager of the Google Data Center in Eemshaven, the Netherlands. I've been working in the chemical industry for over 20 years and I needed something different. I was contacted by one of the managers in the Google Data Center if I wanted to apply for a position here. And it sounded really, really interesting. I love challenges and problem solving. I'm leading a team that is maintaining the data center and then not the IT equipment, but everything around it that can make the IT equipment run. So the power supplies, the cooling systems. There are two ways to cool data centers, cooling towers and chillers. It's a delicate balance between water availability and energy availability. Cooling towers is the most energy efficient way of cooling a data center. So that's why it was chosen to have cooling towers on this site. If you choose water cooling, then of course you have to do a second step, which is think about what is the most sustainable water source available. When we started here in the Eemshaven, we always wanted to use industrial water. However, that was not available. So the first couple of years, we used potable water. Up to now, there always has been enough potable water in the Netherlands, but now it's very different. So that's why it's important to be able to use all kinds of sources of water. What I like about Google is that they are focused on having a positive impact on the community around them and invest in more sustainable options. Since the beginning, we already had contact with Northwater on the options and the possibility of having industrial water available for us. Northwater is a water expert company. They do water treatment. They also partner on industrial water uses. Google was the launching customer for an industrial water pipeline that was being built together with Northwater, running from their treatment facility in Harmerwalde all the way to the Eemshaven. Next to this industrial water pipeline, at the same time, Groningen installed a potable water pipeline, increasing water security for the whole area here. It was a huge project. The pipes are really big. It was a big construction to put all those pipelines underground. It's 28 kilometers of pipeline. So it took years for the agreement, the design and the construction. And we took it into use in April 2021. 
The water comes in from the Ames Canal, then it's treated by North Water. They take out metals and organic materials, and then it's being pumped through a big water pipeline all the way to the Ames Haven site. The water arrives at the data center in the water metering building, and then it's being transported from there to the cooling towers. Then it goes to the blowdown pit, where we sample again, because we also need to make sure that the discharging water has a certain quality. It's being pumped through a pipeline to a pumping station, which is near the dike, and then it's transported under the dike through a pipeline into the Wadden Sea. When I was little, we had a river close by, and then between the summer dike and the winter dike, there would be shallow waters and they would freeze easily, so we would always be ice skating. Now, when we are lucky, once every five years, we have one or two days of ice skating. If you look at old pictures from old painters, there's a huge amount of paintings where all people were ice skating like one, two centuries ago. I don't think a painter from nowadays would ever be able to paint a painting like that because those pictures are not there anymore. I really miss it. Drought, climate change, we all see that difference, I think, the Dutch people. I'm a bit worried because if all the poles are melting and we don't stop or at least limit the sea level rise from the climate change, then the Netherlands will have a big challenge. Working for Google makes me feel proud because this company is doing so much for sustainability, for climate change. It's an important topic in the company and that's really something to be proud of. Well, like I said, you won't find it in the news except for one article in The Guardian. And I should show that to you. Uruguayans are screaming and crying out about their water shortage, and they call it a pillage. They are calling it a pillage. This was being reported that the plan to build a Google data center that will use millions of liters of water a day has sparked anger in Uruguay, which is suffering its worst drought. Water shortages are so severe that the country, in the country that a state of emergency has been declared. They've added salted water to public drinking supplies, prompting widespread <sighs> protests. Now, the funny thing is, is that Uruguayan government rejected aid, you know, to tackle this, which is bizarre. You would say, why would they refuse aid it's called uh, manufacturing a crisis. Their main drinking supply is uh, almost gone, but we must have faith in God, right? This is how you start it all. You start it all by manufacturing a crisis. Now, Let's shift gears, because we've got a live hearing to attend. Please enjoy this um, musical interlude, uh, one of my favorite mashups, actually. It's, um, you know, we're all numb going down this fast track, so why not, right? Please enjoy the musical interlude before we get to Christopher Ray, and then some. Just caught in the undertow And every second I waste 
All right, there we go. Now people can hear me. I'm numb. Almost all the time, I'm numb. Numb like no other, numb. And it's because it derives from a frustration that I have. A frustration where people don't seem to want to put in the effort or they seem to believe that they have no power. Because if this is my script, you are living the dystopian future. And this shadowy organization, the one that I have coined as the fourth unelected branch of government, that you cannot fire, you've never hired, you've never elected, and you don't even know their names, have seized control of our nation. They have implemented a three-pronged strategy, well, according to my script, to maintain their grip on power. First, they manipulate the climate creating weather manipulation wars, creating artificial water shortages, artificial food shortages to control the population. And when water becomes a new black gold, and I've said this years ago, when water is a luxury rationed and distributed by this organization, it makes the people dependent on them for survival. In addition, they use the pharmaceutical industry to control health, birth rates, and deaths. They introduce mandatory drugs. They keep the population docile and compliant, or just eliminates them, while also ensuring a steady stream of revenue, of course. And the third prong approach is education. Rewriting history and suppressing dissenting voices, they create a narrative that paints them as the saviors of the nation, ensuring that future generations grow up loyal to their cause. However, the spirit of the American people is not one that can easily be broken. The people can manage to reform their election process, eliminating the corruption that allowed this fourth unelected branch of government to seize power in the first place, to eliminate the Praetorian Guard. With fair and transparent elections, we are able to elect representatives who truly represent the will of the people. Imagine, we rectify elections. This is the script that we're writing together. They will implement a series of reforms to dismantle the fourth unelected branch of government's control. They will invest uh, in technologies and infrastructure in order to ensure that manipulation of vital resources for the people never happens again. Regulation on the pharmaceutical industry, ensuring that drugs are for healing and not control. Reforming the education system, promoting critical thinking, and encouraging dissenting voices, encouraging contradictory views, encouraging creativity while adhering to the foundations of this nation. We, the people of the United States, will be gaining control of our own destiny. And we will vow to never let such tyranny take hold again by implementing the appropriate checks and balances to prevent any one group from gaining too much power again and foster a culture of vigilance and civic responsibility to ensure that this hard won freedom, a process of over 250 years as a beacon of hope for mankind will never be taken for granted again. I'm reminding you this, the importance of transparency, accountability, and the power of the people. 
because this is the only way we can maintain a free and just society. Now, having said that, today we are apparently having hearing with the FBI in regards to their weaponization. I have made it abundantly clear that Jim Jordan is not someone I trust. And this is not just from my interactions directly, but from others that are working so hard for our nation that are in the Senate, in the House, that made the same allegations. So while we watch this monologue, I want you to remember, this is how politicians raise money. They say great things, they talk a great game, and unfortunately their hands are tied, so they did their best. But sometimes we let them think that that's all we want. Do your best, only to ensure that we win in the end. Behold the ultimate script. Chair now recognized himself for an opening statement. Eight days ago, eight days ago on July 4th in the Western District of Louisiana, the court found that the federal government suppressed Americans' First Amendment free speech rights. In his conclusion on page 154, the court said this, the judge said this, plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits in establishing that the government has used its power to silence the opposition. Opposition to COVID-19 vaccines, opposition to COVID-19 masking and lockdowns, opposition to the lab leak theory of COVID-19, opposition to the validity of the 2020 election, opposition to President Biden's policies, statements that the Hunter Biden laptop was true, and opposition to policies of the government officials in power. All were suppressed. It is quite telling that each example or category of suppressed speech was conservative in nature. The court further writes, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian ministry of truth. Specific to the FBI, the court said this, the FBI's failure to alert social media companies that the Biden laptop story was real and not Russian disinformation is particularly troubling. The FBI had the laptop in their possession since December 2019 and had warned social media companies repeatedly to look out for, quote, hack and dump operation by the Russians prior to the 2020 election. Even after Facebook, specifically ask whether the laptop story was Russian disinformation, the FBI refused to comment, resulting in social media companies' suppression of this story, and as a result, millions, millions of our fellow citizens did not hear the story prior to the November 3rd, 2020 election. Additionally, the FBI was included in industry meetings, bilateral meetings, received and forwarded alleged misinformation to social media companies, and actually misled companies in regard to the laptop story. When the court says the FBI misled, that's a nice way of saying they lied. They lied and as a result, important information was kept from we the people days before the most important election we have, election of the President of the United States, election of the Commander in Chief. In a survey last fall, four out of five Americans said they believe there's a two-tiered system of justice in America today. They said that because there is. They said that because of what they've witnessed. Think about what Americans have seen. National School Board Association, left-wing political group, writes the White House and asks them to treat parents as, at school board meetings as terrorists. 
And the Garland Justice Department does just that. They put together a memo, set up a dedicated line of threat communication, a snitch line on parents. As a result, parents get investigated by our FBI, get a threat tag associated with their name, 25 of them, because whistleblowers came and told us were investigated by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Americans have seen the FBI's Richmond Field Office put together a memorandum saying pro-life Catholics are extremists. They've seen 20 FBI agents, SWAT team members, show up at the home of Mark Halk and arrest him in front of his wife and seven children, even though he had indicated he'd be happy to turn himself in. And what was he arrested for? Him and his 12-year-old son were praying outside an abortion facility. Some guy starts screaming in his son's face and he, and he did what, what, frankly, any dad would do, defended his child. What's interesting is the National School Board Association apologized for the letter, but the Attorney General refuses to rescind his directive. The FBI did rescind, thank goodness, the Richmond Catholic Memorandum, but they refused to tell Congress who wrote it and who approved it. And Mr. Halk, Mr. Halk, when he got his day in court, he was acquitted by a jury of his peers. American speech is censored, parents are called terrorists, Catholics are called radicals, and I haven't even talked about the spying that took place of a presidential campaign or the raiding of a former president's home. But maybe what's more frightening is what happens if you come forward and tell Congress. If you're a whistleblower, come tell the legislature, come tell the Congress what's going on, look out. You will be retaliated against. Ask Garrett O'Boyle, who told Congress about these issues. Took his clearance, they took his pay, they took his kids' clothes. Ask Gary Shapley, 14-year veteran at the IRS, handled some of the biggest international tax fraud cases at the agency. He comes forward and the Justice Department kicks him off the case. But here's what's truly unbelievable. Here's what's amazing. With all that history, with all that, the Justice Department, the FBI, want the taxpayers they censored, the parents they labeled, the pro-life Catholics they called radical, they want them to pay for a new FBI headquarters. And they want FISA reauthorization of the 702 program in its current form. It's in, it's in the director's opening statement. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. There are 204,000 reasons why Republicans will oppose FISA reauthorization in its current form. 204,000 times the FBI improperly searched the 702 database. And unlike the FBI censorship in the court's opinion that was focused on conservatives, the FBI's illegal scrutiny wasn't just limited to conservatives. BLM supporters were illegally scrutinized by the FBI as well. And I hope our Democrat friends will join us in opposing reauthorization of Section 702 the way it's currently done. And I think they will. And I hope, and I hope they will work with us in the appropriations process to stop the weaponization of the government against the American people and in this double standard that exists now in our justice system. With that I yield to the gentleman from New York for an opening statement. Mr. Chairman, not that long ago, an oversight hearing of the FBI in this committee would have been a relatively bipartisan exercise. My colleagues on both sides of the aisle would have asked legitimate questions about the functioning and mission of the Bureau. Some of the questions may have been tough, 
debate may have gotten a little heated when we discussed important topics like privacy and discrimination. But our questioning would have been grounded in advancing and overseeing the FBI's dual missions of enforcing federal laws and countering national security threats on American soil. In short, despite our disagreements, we would have done our duty as members of the Judiciary Committee. Today, unfortunately, House Republicans will fall well short of that mark. For them, this hearing is little more than performance art. It is an elaborate show designed with only two purposes in mind, to protect Donald Trump from the consequences of his actions and to return him to the White House in the next election. Don't take my word for it. Chairman Jordan announced his plan last August, just days after the FBI searched Mar-a-Lago. He told an audience at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, that the investigation into Trump's wrongdoing was, was designed to, quote, help frame up the 2024 race when I hope and I think President Trump is going to run again. And we, make sure, we need to make sure that he wins. Let me repeat that. We need to make sure that he wins. In pursuit of this goal, Chairman Jordan and committee Republicans have claimed for months that the FBI is corrupt, rotten, politicized, and their favorite word, weaponized against the American people. Chairman Jordan has launched an array of baseless investigations into the FBI, most premised on absurd conspiracy theories, so, some so absurd that the chairman cannot possibly believe them to be true. But this is where the extreme MAGA leadership of this Congress has brought us today. Today, House Republicans will attack the FBI for having had the audacity to treat Donald Trump like any other citizen. The strategy is simple, really. When in doubt, Chairman Jordan investigates the investigators. The FBI dared to hold Trump accountable, so Republicans must discredit the FBI at all costs. You will hear claims today that the FBI's decision to investigate Donald Trump was somehow unfair. You will, hear that the you will hear the Republicans attack the indictment of former President Trump on 37 counts related to his gross mishandling of national security information, including information regarding defense and weapons capabilities of both the United States and foreign countries, United States nuclear programs, potential vulnerabilities of the United States and its allies to military attack, and plans for possible retaliation in response to a foreign attack. The facts are made clear in the indictment, quote, the unauthorized disclosure of these classified documents could put at risk the national security of the United States, foreign relations, the safety of the United States military, and human sources, and the continued viability of sensitive intelligence collection methods." Close quote. Indeed, the indictment goes on to describe how the former president made such unauthorized disclosures, with him boasting about and showing his classified documents to numerous individuals without proper security clearance. You will hear claims today that this indictment against Trump was unfair, maybe even that it was unlawful. You'll hear that the FBI should have just asked Trump a little more nicely, one more time, to hand over the documents. You'll hear that the case was a political investigation from the start, orient orchestrated by a liberal-loving liberal FBI that ensured Trump would be wrongfully vilified at every turn. These claims, of course, are completely untethered from the evidence. Even if you believe, as Chairman Jordan claimed, safety and security of the United States to remove those documents from the White House, then lie to the government instead of returning them. Donald Trump must be held accountable, and attempts to shield him from the consequences of his own actions are both transparent and despicable. Ultimately, no matter how many times Republicans attack Director Ray or the FBI, 
or the investigation at Mar-a-Lago, I trust in the rule of law. Mr. Trump will have his day in court. I believe the system will hold him accountable. And I thank the men and women of the FBI who helped bring the classified information to safety and protect the national security of our nation. Thank you for being here today, Director Ray. I hope your agents will not be disheartened by what they hear today and will continue this kind of work essential to the safety of our nation. I thank the chairman and I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Just for the record, the pronunciation of the former assistant director in charge of the Washington field office is Dan Tuano, something that ranking member might have known if he'd actually shown up at the deposition like I did. Uh, with that, we, uh, without objection, all other opening statements will be included in the record. We will now introduce today's witnesses. The Honorable Christopher Ray has been the director of the FBI since 2017. He previously served as the Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division of the Department of Justice, the Principal Associate Deputy Attorney General, and Associate Deputy Attorney General, and as Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Director Ray has also worked in private practice at King Spalding LLP. We welcome our witness and thank him for appearing today. Uh, we will begin by swearing you in. Director, would you please rise, raise your right hand. You've done this, you've done this before. Do you, swear, do you swear or affirm under penalty of perjury that the testimony you're about to give is true and correct to the best of your knowledge, information, and belief, so help you God? The, let the record show the, the witness answered in the affirmative. Um, please know that your written testimony will be entered into the record in its entirety. Accordingly, we ask that you summarize your testimony in five minutes. We'll give you a few extra minutes if you like, Director. And then you know how this works. We'll be five minutes of questioning and my guess is every single member is going to have questions for you. So uh, again, thank you for being here. Director Ray, you're recognized for your opening statement. Thank you. Good morning, Chairman Jordan, Ranking Member Nadler, members of the committee. Uh, in the time that I have before we get to your questions, I want to talk about the sheer breadth and impact of the work the FBI's 38,000 employees are doing each and every day. Because the work the men and women of the FBI do to protect the American people goes way beyond the one or two investigations that seem to capture all the headlines. Take violent crime. Last year alone, working shoulder to shoulder with our partners in state and local law enforcement, the FBI arrested more than 20,000 violent criminals and child predators. That's an average of almost 60 bad guys taken off the streets per day, every day or our work going after the cartels, exploiting our southwest border to traffic fentanyl and other dangerous drugs into communities nationwide. The FBI's running well over 300 investigations targeting the leadership of those cartels. And working with our partners, we've already seized hundreds of kilograms of fentanyl this year alone, stopping deadly drugs from reaching their intended destinations in states all over the country and saving countless American lives. Or the thousands of active investigations we now have into the Chinese government's efforts to steal our most precious secrets, rob our businesses of their ideas and innovation, and repress freedom of speech right here in the United States. And that is just scratching the surface. The men and women of the FBI work tirelessly every day to protect the American people from what is really a staggering array of threats. And we don't do that work alone. The FBI now leads more than 750 task forces nationwide, made up of more than 6,000 state and local task force officers, or TFOs as we call them, from more than 1,800 different state and local agencies. Each of those TFOs represents an officer, 
a deputy, or an investigator that a local police chief, sheriff, or state superintendent was willing to send our way, certainly not because they didn't have enough work to do in their own department, but because they saw the tremendous value that our FBI-led task forces bring. And we are honored and humbled by their trust in us and grateful for their partnership. But the numbers don't tell the whole story. To truly appreciate the impact the FBI and our partners are having, you gotta look at the cases. Just last month, for instance, the FBI charged 31 members of two drug trafficking organizations responsible for distributing dangerous drugs like fentanyl, cocaine, and methamphetamine throughout the area around Marion, Ohio. In that one investigation run out of the FBI's two-man office in Mansfield, we worked with partners from multiple local police departments and sheriff's offices to take kilos of fentanyl off Marion streets. Enough lethal doses, I should add, to kill the entire population of Columbus, Cleveland, and Cincinnati combined. It's a great example of how even a small office with a small personnel footprint, the FBI is working big cases hand in hand with our state and local partners to have an outsized impact in our communities. The FBI's got thousands of employees working scores of investigations like that all over the country to protect the American people. Those men and women who choose to dedicate their careers, their lives really, to this kind of work and fulfilling the FBI mission are inspiring. At a time when so many other law enforcement agencies have had a difficult time with recruiting and retention, the Bureau continues to attract applicants in near record numbers. In fact, after the first couple years of my tenure, the number of Americans applying to be special agents tripled the pace from when I started, reaching the highest levels in about a decade. At the same time, inside the FBI, our special agent attrition has remained in the low single digits and would be the envy of almost any employer. And even with these bigger numbers, the folks we're continuing to add continue to be top-notch. The percentage of both veterans and special agent hires with prior law enforcement experience has remained as steady as ever, between 25 and 30 percent. Add to that, in a job market where applicants have a whole lot of other opportunities, the percentage of those new agent trainees that also have advanced degrees is up and now approaches about 50 percent of every class at Quantico. But the thing that unites them all is a commitment to public service, a willingness to put others above themselves. And that is true from the bottom of the organization to the top. Since becoming director, I have worked hard to assemble and cultivate a leadership team that embodies those values and characteristics. It's a team that I purposefully chose because they walked the walk out in the field. Just taking our top eight leaders as an example, they all came up through the Bureau as line agents. They've worked in 21 different field offices and have a combined 130 years of field experience. They include a West Point grad, veterans of the Army, Air Force, and Marines, as well as a former police officer and state trooper. And not a single one is a political appointee, not one. Today's FBI leaders reflect the best 
of our organization, an organization that is made up of 38,000 men and women who are patriots, professionals, and dedicated public servants. And that is the real FBI. I've now visited every single one of our 56 field offices twice, some of them more than twice. I speak constantly with local chiefs and sheriffs from all 50 states who work closely with us every day, with judges coast to coast who see and hear our work up close, with business leaders who turn to us for help with cyber attacks and Chinese economic espionage, with victims and their families, people that we protect from gangs and predators, and the FBI they tell me about consistently, almost resoundingly, is the same FBI that I see, an FBI that is respected, appreciated, trusted, and that is there for them when they need us the most. And that is the FBI that inspires me and that I'm proud to be here today to represent. Thank you. Uh, we, we thank you. That, uh, we will now proceed under the five-minute rule with questions. The chair recognizes the gentleman from Louisiana, Mr. Johnson. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Director Ray, this is no time to mince words. The American people have lost faith in the FBI. All of our constituents are demanding that we get this situation under control, and we have to do that. That's our responsibility. This is not a political party issue, sir. This is about whether the very system of justice in our country can be trusted anymore. Without that, no republic can survive. See, the American people that we represent are losing count of the scandals that are mounting. The FBI has been involved. They've seen evidence that it's being used as a political tool of the Biden administration. They've seen counterterrorism resources being used against school parents, the homes of conservative political opponents being raided. They've seen conservative states being targeted over their election integrity laws and conservative Catholics and pro-life citizens characterized as violent extremists. Just last month, as you know, special former, uh, former special counsel John Durham sat right in that seat and testified that the Justice Department and the FBI should never have launched the bogus Trump-Russia investigation. And his lengthy report reluctantly concluded that the FBI, quote, failed to uphold its mission of strict fidelity to the law. Just last week, NBC had a poll. Only 37% of registered voters now view the FBI positively. 35% have a negative view. In 2018, by comparison, 52% of the country had a positive view of the FBI. There's a serious decline in the people's faith and it's on your watch, sir. And then, July 4th, we had this explosive, explosive 155-page opinion from a federal court in my home state of Louisiana. It explains in detail that the FBI has been directly involved in what the, the court says is, quote, arguably the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. The court ordered the White House, DOJ, and FBI, among others, to immediately cease colluding with and coercing social media companies to suppress American speech, of course, conservative speech in particular. Director Ray, I find it stunning. You made no mention of this court opinion, either in your opening statement today or in this lengthy 14-page report that you prepared on July 12th, which is eight days after the court ruling. Have you read the ruling, sir? I am familiar with the ruling, and I've uh, reviewed it with our Office of General Counsel. Are you deeply disturbed by what they've told you about the ruling, if you haven't read it yourself? Uh, obviously, we're going to comply with the court's order, the court's preliminary injunction. We sent out guidance to the field and the headquarters uh, about how to do that. Uh, needless to say, the, the injunction itself is a subject of ongoing litigation, uh, and so I'll, I'll decline to comment further well, on it. Well, let me that. tell you what the court concluded, because it, it should be the first thing you think about every morning and the last thing you think about at night. They said that, quote, the court found, 
Apparently, the FBI engaged in a massive effort to suppress disfavored conservative speech and blatantly ignored the First Amendment's right to free speech. The evidence shows the FBI threatened adverse consequences to social media companies that they did not comply with its censorship request. The court found that, quote, this seemingly unrelenting pressure by the FBI and the other defendants had the intended result of suppressing millions of protected free speech postings by American citizens. As a result, the court states, for example, millions of citizens Citizens did not hear about the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the November 3, 2020 election. Page four of the court ruling lists some of the important subjects that the Biden administration and the FBI forced the social media uh, platforms to suppress. The evidence shows you, your agency, the people that directly report to you, suppressed conservative-leaning free speech about topics like the laptop, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, the effectiveness of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccines, speech about election integrity in the 2020 presidential election, security of voting by mail, even parody about the president himself, negative posts about the economy. The FBI made the social media platforms pull that information off the internet if it came from conservative sources. They, they did this under the guise that it was disinformation. Can you, can you define what disinformation is? What I can tell you is that our focus is not on disinformation, broadly speaking. Well, wait a minute. Yes, it is. Well, wait a minute. You're, can I you're, answer the question? You can in a minute. Your star witness said in the litigation, Elvis Chan, who's in charge of this, said they do it on the basis of dif disinformation. We need, a, we need a definition of what that is. Our focus is on malign foreign disinformation, that is, foreign hostile actors who engage in covert efforts to Mr. abuse Ray, Mr. our social media platforms, which is something that is not seriously in dispute. I have to stop phenomenon. you for time. That's not accurate. You need to read this court opinion because you're in charge of enforcing it. The court has found that, and Elvis Chan testified under oath in charge of this for you. He said 50%, he had a 50% success rate in having alleged election disinformation taken down or censored. That, that wasn't just foreign adversaries, sir. That was American citizens. How do you answer for that? Well, first off, I'm not sure that's a correct characterization. It comes of right out of the opinion. You should read but it. What I, of, of his testimony. But what I would say is the FBI is not in the business of moderating content or causing any social media company to suppress or censor. That is not what the court has found. What I would also say is among the things that you listed off, I find ironic the reference to the lab leak theory. The idea that the FBI would somehow be involved in suppressing references to the lab leak theory is somewhat absurd when you consider the fact that the FBI was the only, the only agency in the entire intelligence community to reach the assessment that it was more likely than not that that was the explanation but your for the agents, pandemic. But your agents pulled it off the internet, sir. That's what the evidence in the court has found. Time of the gentleman has expired. The gentleman from New York is recognized. Director Ray, House Republicans have attacked the execution of the search warrant of Mar-a-Lago last August as a, quote, unprecedented raid. Would you consider the execution of the search warrant at Mar-a-Lago a raid? Uh, I would not call it a raid. I would call it the execution of a lawful search warrant. Can you describe how the search was executed? Well, we had the case team, uh, you know, follow its standard procedure. It has sometimes been described as a SWAT uh, operation. It was not. There was no SWAT involvement. Um, but beyond that, I think I want to be really careful with getting too far into the details now that this case is uh, not only in the hands of a special counsel, but more importantly, in my view, uh, in front of the court. And I learned a long time ago as a line prosecutor and defense lawyer to respect 
the, uh, the court process is where I think were, we should speak. Were particular steps taken to ensure that the execution of the search warrant did not draw undue attention? Uh, I think there were steps along those lines, yes, sir. Can you name a couple of them? Well, among, among other things, we did not uh, have people uh, coming in so-called raid jackets, uh, you know, which is often something you would see. So in other words, the FBI agents executing the search wore plain clothes so as not to attract undue attention. And the FBI waited until Trump had left Mar-a-Lago to execute the search. Is that correct? Yes. And Chairman Jordan has attacked the DOJ and the FBI for not attempting to get the documents back from Trump consensually before turning to a search warrant. I want to walk through all these, the opportunities Trump had to produce these documents and have a series of yes or no questions. The National Archives, also known as NARA, first asked Trump to return all presidential records to them in May 2021, correct? Well, I don't, I don't remember the date, but I remember there was a request by the okay. National Archives. And then throughout 2021, NARA made repeated follow-up requests, but still Trump replied to comply, correct? Uh, yes, I would refer you to the pleadings that have been filed in court that lay out in, in better detail than I could in hear. Fact, in yeah. fact, it was not until January 2022, after NARA warned Trump that failing to return documents could violate the Presidential Records Act, that Trump finally produced 15 boxes of documents to it, correct? Again, I, I would just refer to our court filings, which go into great detail about all this. And even these six, 15 boxes did not contain all the documents Trump was required to return. Correct? That's my recollection, but again, I'll refer to So in to May violence. 2022, a grand jury had to actually subpoena Trump for the missing documents, correct? The same answer. And Trump was then present on June 3rd when his attorneys handed over another folder of documents and a certification that all classified material had been returned, correct? Again, I just want, want to stick with what's in the court filings. That sounds right to me, but okay. I, I really want to be careful to stay within the four corners. But the certification was false, right? Even then, Trump had not returned all classified uh, material, correct? I think that is part of the indictment. He had additional documents hiding in his bathroom, in his storage room, in his storage units, etc., yes? Again, I think that's part of the indictment. And so finally, DOJ and FBI were required to obtain a search warrant to obtain the classified documents that had not been retained, correct? Same answer. The documents retrieved during that search included 69 marked confidential 98 secret and 30 top secret. Is that correct? The same answer. So to sum up, President Trump had many, many chances to voluntarily comply with FBI and DOJ's request. Instead, he made the choice to keep these highly classified defense and national security documents, apparently because he wanted a souvenir. I find myself in the strange position of agreeing with former Attorney General Bill Barr's statement that Trump brought this on himself, and I would add that it's absurd that House Republicans are attacking the FBI and DOJ for doing their job and ensuring that no person is above the law. I yield back. The gentleman yields back. The gentleman from Kentucky is recognized for five minutes. I thank the chairman. Uh, Director Ray, in light of information provided to us about the FBI's investigation of the January 6th pipe bombs, in an interview with Assistant Director Stephen Duantuano, Chairman Jordan and I sent you a letter a month ago some of the information that we found in that interview was that phone data that could have helped to identify the pipe bomber was corrupted, was unusable. Uh, he also wasn't sure who found or how the second bomb was found at the DNC. Do you know how the second bomb was found at the DNC? And, and when do you plan on answering our letter? 
Well, as to the letter, I, I will uh, work with the department to make sure we can figure out what information we can provide. As you know, this is a very active, ongoing investigation, and there are some restrictions on that, but we yes, will Yes, we can handle classified information, it's, and we fund your department, and so you need to provide that. I, it's not, respectfully, it's not an issue of classification. It's an issue of commenting on ongoing criminal investigations, which is something that by longstanding department policy, we are restricted in doing and in fact the last administration actually strengthened those policies partly that's because not our policy though and we fund you so let's move on I could do you know how the second pipe bomb do you can you tell us how the second pipe bomb was found at the DNC I, again I'm not going to get into that here 900 days ago is when this happened and you said you had total confidence we'd apprehend the subject we've found video that looks like somebody a passerby miraculously found this pipe bomb at the DNC and then notified the police. Miraculously, I say, because it was at specifically the same, the precise time to cause the maximum distraction from the events going on at the Capitol. Can you show this video that we have, please? I'd like to know if the director has seen this. This is somebody with a, with a mask on, wearing a hat. They're walking in front of the DNC, which is out of the view on the right-hand side. You'll see him come into view. He goes to one police car, he goes to another police car, he's holding a backpack, he's got a mask on, he's talking to the police. And within a minute, they start scrambling. You'll see the camera turn to the pipe bomb, the location of the pipe bomb. By the way, that's, a, I believe, the Metro police are now getting out of their car, and that's uh, Vice President-elect's detail in the black SUV, I believe, parked about 30 feet from the pipe bomb, eating lunch. Okay, now we go over to the location of the pipe bomb. The cameras are scrambling. It, it appears to me that that's not a coincidence, that the person with the backpack who walked by that bench and then went up to the police uh, and the detail didn't, it, didn't do that accidentally. They had a purpose in mind and that what transpired after that was the result of information that person gave to them. If that person found the pipe bomb, would they be a suspect? Well, again, I don't want to speculate about specific individuals. I will tell you that we have done thousands of interviews, uh, reviewed something like 40,000 video files, of which this is uh, one, assessed uh, 500-something tips. Have you interviewed uh, that the person? Devices. We, we have conducted all logical investigative steps and interviewed all logical individuals at this then point. Then you need, it's 900 Continuing, days. You need to tell us what you found because we're finding stuff you haven't released into the public. In, well, in my remaining minute, I, I want to turn to another issue. Uh, George Hill, former FBI supervisory intelligence analyst in the Boston field office, told us that the Bank of America, uh, with no legal process, was uh, gave to the FBI gun purchase records uh, with, with no geographical boundaries for anybody that was a Bank of America customer. Is that true? Well, what I do know is that the, uh, a number of business community partners all the time, uh, including financial institutions, share information with us about possible criminal activity. And my did understanding is that that's fully lawful. In the did specific, you, did you the ask specific for that information? Instance, in the specific instance that you're asking about, my understanding is that that information was shared with field offices for information only, but then recalled to avoid even the appearance uh, of any kind of overreach. But my understanding is that that's a fully lawful process. We, was there a warrant involved? 
Again, my understanding is that the institution in question shared information with us, as happens all the time. Did you request the information? I can't speak to the specifics. Okay, well, we've got an email where it says the FBI did give the search queries to Bank of America, and Bank of America responded to the FBI and gave over this information without a search warrant. Do you believe there's any limitation on your ability to obtain gun purchase data or purchase information for people that for people who aren't suspects from banks without well, a warrant well now you're now you're asking a legal question which i would prefer to defer to the lawyers uh, since i'm not practicing as one right now including the department but what i will tell you is that my understanding is that the process by which we receive information from business community partners across a wide variety of industries including financial institutions sharing information with us about possible criminal activity is something that is fully lawful uh, under current uh, federal law. It may be lawful, but it's not constitutional. I yield back. The gentleman yields uh, back. The gentlelady from California is recognized for five minutes. Uh, <clears throat> thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, uh, Director Ray, for being here. I, you know, I think it's, it's actually sad that the majority is uh, engaging in conspiracy theories and efforts to try and discredit one of the premier law enforcement agencies in the United States <clears throat> in the effort to try and, uh, without really any evidence, um, make the case that the FBI is somehow opposed to conservative views. In my view, actually, I'm concerned that the FBI has been reluctant to do its job when it comes to the former president. Um, I'd like to ask unanimous consent to put in the record a, an article from the Washington Post, FBI resisted opening probe into Trump's role in January 6th for more than a year. Without objection. Uh, Director Ray, uh, would you uh, disagree with the premise of this article that the FBI um, delayed in looking at Mr. Trump himself? The January 6th committee, and I was a member, uh, did find that the ex-president was the center of a wide-ranging conspiracy to overturn the election. Uh, did the FBI start looking right after January 6th at the ex-president? I'm sorry, I just lost the last part of your question there. Did the FBI start looking at the ex-president's role in January 6th, starting January 7th or closely to that time? Well, let me start with, uh, I'm not in the business of, of kind of commenting or engaging on the, the truth or, or falsity of newspaper articles. Uh, and in this particular instance, as I'm sure you can appreciate, there is an ongoing, very important ongoing special okay. counsel investigation that's now in court. And so not right. only do I not want to talk about respect, the ongoing investigation, I respect, the internal deliberations related to it are even more sensitive. I, I respect that you cannot discuss ongoing um, investigations. Let me turn to another item. I mean, there's been criticism, and the ranking member went through the scenario leading up to uh, the warrant uh, for the documents at um, Mar-a-Lago. But I'd like to ask a unanimous consent to put an article from the Washington Post, showdown before the raid, FBI agents and prosecutors argued over Trump. No objection. It's pretty clear from this article um, that there was a resistance on the part of the FBI to actually 
um, look at the president or pursue that case vigorously, and although you can't comment on it, the article does suggest that FBI agents want to just close the case uh, because the ex-president made an assertion that uh, a search had been made. Now, we had um, Mr. D'Antuano uh, in as a witness, and he testified four times that the Mar-a-Lago uh, search had adequate probable cause. Do you agree with that statement? That the search had probable cause? Correct. Yes. Thank you. Um, and so you don't have any dispute that there was probable cause for this warrant. I, you know, I just want to say, before going to my next question, that over and over again the FBI delayed and showed unprecedented uh, caution before investigating the ex-president, even when there was a potential threat uh, to national security. That is, that's my view. That's very far uh, from the assertion that there was unfair targeting. Can Let I me just, ask can I, on that point, if I just, if I may, uh, while I can't discuss any specific investigation, my expectation for all of our investigations repeatedly communicated to all of our people, and this is especially important in sensitive investigations, is that our folks take great pains to be rigorous, professional, objective, following all our policies and procedures and do the work in the right way. And sometimes that's frustrating to others. My time is almost up. And I, I, I want to ask you another question. In the Senate hearing, in response to Senate, uh, Senator Wyden's question of whether the FBI is currently purchasing Americans' location uh, data, you indicated that it was limited to data derived from internet advertising. Uh, it's since been um, reported that the FBI has admitted it bought uh, U.S. location data. Is the FBI purchasing location data from commercial sor sources without a warrant? Uh, this is an area that requires a little more precision and context for me to be able to answer that fully. So let me have my staff follow back up with you. So all right, so I'm going to cease the hearing there and you guys can continue it or it's live streaming. I'd like to tell you a couple of things and I'm going to restate this. Every single time you are banned from a platform, either that be social media, Venmo, PayPal, et cetera, et cetera, they ban you and under their rules and regulations, this allows them to provide all your data to the federal government freely. They have stipulations and rules and regulations that sit within their, like PayPal could say, oh, you know, um, hey, I identified Tori as someone that could be engaging in bad things because, I don't know, maybe she's a white supremacist or maybe she's money laundering. They could say whatever the fuck they want. Under their rules as a private company, the procedure is that they provide all your data over to the federal government. Now, on top of that, the question that he was just asked is, are you purchasing data? Meaning they are spending our tax dollars to pay companies like Amazon and Google and ring doorbells and, and, and to collect data, video, audio, and location data on U.S. citizens without a warrant. One might say they have access to that. Again, the Fourth Amendment has been dead for a very long time. It is about time that we realize that. Christopher Ray, while many of you are concerned about him, I believe that he is bringing it home. Now, you all will say, no, this is just, you know, you have to have faith. 
You have to have faith and you have to have trust in God that everything is happening the way it is intended to. Now, tomorrow, I will be breaking one of the biggest stories. I will remind you of the persecution that they did to President Trump. I will remind you how they all said they had no idea about Hunter Biden and Joe Biden and Obama's activities. I will show you that the people that actually testified against the president were actually part of the whole conglomerate of the Obama-Biden money-making machine in Ukraine. And I will be breaking that with receipts. So there's that. Now, as far as the water is concerned, I've stated this. There's no point in providing panic. There's always ways to mitigate prevention, uh, you know, to cause you stress. But I want you guys to know that we are not powerless and we are not alone. Yesterday, I showcased you Harlan Crow, right? And I want you guys to see how much they're losing to the point that they're targeting the only justice that will remain after the end of President Trump's term. Only one justice will stand. Therefore, we have another five to go. You have to understand that they're even targeting his chief of staff who is getting remunerated via Venmo for orchestrating his Christmas party. I kid you not. That is how tedious they're going. Oh, it's a red flag. Oh, we should take a look into it. I think all of us should start filing FOIA requests on all the other Supreme Court judges and how they may have, you know, been paying their chief of staff, how they may have from the Supreme Court Historical Society received gifts and gone on trips with yachts. This is how we fix things. That's the problem. We need to start being proactive. And there are a lot of people that are proactive. A lot of people that don't sit there and tell you that. A lot of them. And so, as I, as I end today's show, I want you to understand that this is, uh, you know, a matter, this fourth unelected branch of government that I've been talking to is a very difficult conversation to have because it is such a well-oiled machine influenced by global interests and foreign policies. This fourth unelected branch of government, a branch that operates behind the scenes, away from the public eye, manipulating the way you view their actions. This is all a grand charade. It is a show, a meticulously scripted play, where the end is predestined. By them, it would be the people's failure. By the people, it is the people's victory. They want us to believe we're moving forward, but in reality, we're running in circles, trapped in a maze of their design. We have choices. We can be powerful or powerless. We can be spectators or participants. I choose to not be a spectator in this grand play. We're the actors, we're the directors, and the audience. Understand that. And we have the power to change the script, to alter the course of their narrative. Our power lies in our vote and in our voice. It is through fair and transparent elections that we can reclaim control of our nation. And we must always be advocating for the voting system to not be electronic, but transparent. A system that leaves no room for manipulation or deceit. Could you imagine America where every vote is actually counted, where every voice is actually heard, where the power truly lies in the hand of the people. That's not a utopian dream. But in reality, 
It is something that is extremely achievable if we actually defend the rights that we still have on paper, demanding transparency for our electoral process. Remember, being a self-governed nation with the freedoms that we have been afforded is not a spectator sport. It requires our active participation, our vigilance, and our unwavering commitment to the principles of fairness and transparency. Do not be swayed by false promises or manipulated by hidden agendas. We should be reclaiming our power like no other. I want you to understand that, you know, while you're watching all these hearings, tomorrow you will see that all those people that have said all those amazing things about Americans and accountability are actually part of the problem. Because they allowed people to testify that they knew were lying, that they knew were complicit, that they knew partook. Remember the impeachment hearings? Remember the testimony? I do. Did you forget? Because here we go. We're going to go back in time to 2019. And I'll show you just how corrupt these fake-ass representatives are. On that note, I want to wish you guys a fantastic evening. And stay vigilant. And always remember, you should have faith in God because Uruguay removed God from their equation. Look at where they are now. So, how do you win? Well, God hasn't turned his back on us. We've turned our back on him. God bless. Our neighbors and they call it social distancing. It's actually a bigger plan. It's called social conditioning. They took away our privacy. There's always someone listening. The elections planning riots for the citizens The government has always lied, it's history repeating But the problem is the schools dumb you down so you believe them If you try to speak the truth inside a tweet then they delete it Whole administration Satanists who claim they praise in Jesus Every year there's a new name for enemies that we're facing It's Al-Qaeda then ISIS and now American patriots Who would have thought those who love the country the most Would be hated on by folks who call America home Both political parties are equally just as evil They've been working for themselves, don't give a damn about the people Black, white, yellow, brown, humanity needs you Cause united we stand, divided they will defeat <laughs>